this is Gerard Robinson, co-host of The Learning Curve. We are back again for another great conversation with a great person. And this time, I'm actually joined by a new co-host for today, Carrie McDonald. Welcome. It's great to be with you, Gerard. You were with us before as a guest, and now you have an opportunity to come on board as a co-host, so thank you for that. And I've also got to say that Cara's a little jealous that you're on here with me, and so she's going to listen to this with uh, with great interest because she thinks maybe you'll come in and replace her, so just know that's on the table. <laughs> How are we have a great discussion. Here? Yeah. How are things going on your end? Things are going really well. Um, you know, I'm really focused on the homeschooling and schooling alternative space, and there is much to discuss there um, with the rise in homeschooling this fall, as well as these pandemic pods and micro schools sprouting across the country. So it's been a busy time for me covering all of the, these developments. Every week I have an opportunity to read newspapers book articles, peer-reviewed journals, and I always find something interesting. Well, this week, uh, for me, uh, Paul Peterson, who is a professor at Harvard University, who is a scholar, probably responsible for helping produce the largest number of next-generation scholars in the area of parental choice, he published an article in Education Next. Uh, the title is The Price Students Pay When Schools Are Closed, and he identified seven ways that our students and our nation are finding itself are finding ourselves in, in a bad spot because of school closure. Um, one, he said every year that students or every month that they're out of school, they're losing human potential. Uh, number two, online learning is no substitute for classroom instruction. Number three, rules and regulations reduce learning. Number four, closing schools damages the social emotional well-being of children and young people. Five, closing places uh, school closing places students and young people at risk. And number six, school closures and online learning widens the gap between the advantaged and disadvantaged. And lastly, closing schools and degrading school quality uh, damages human capital and the country. Uh, I'm in agreement with most of what uh, Dr. Peterson had to say. I think where I may differ is I do believe that there is a role for online learning uh, playing a role in not substituting instruction, but complementing instruction. Because a number of students were learning online before COVID-19 uh, closed all of our schools. But I think he's on to something and it's uh, worth listening to. Carrie, what do you think? Well, I adore Professor Peterson. I think he's done amazing work and agree with much that appears in this article. I think I would challenge a little bit this notion, again, that education and schooling are conflated. Um, you know, in mm -hmm. my book, Unschooled, I talk about disentangling these two things. And as I mentioned, we're already seeing these really innovative, bottom-up, spontaneous, um, new way, new models of learning this fall as families create these micro schools or look at creating, you know, neighborhood homeschool co-ops and so on. So I think that this have to get back kids back to school because that's the only way they're going to learn is um, is you know not entirely true that there really are other ways to learn beyond. One of the things that P Professor Peterson talks about in this article is a concern about children's sort of psychological well-being um, as a result of being out of school. And there's some really interesting new findings about um, the impact of 
the pandemic on children's psychological well-being. And I'd like to share that a little bit later. Sounds good. What's the story caught your interest this week? Yeah, so there is an interesting story that was that appeared um, at Real Clear Education, but from First Things, written by Mark Bauerlein, called The Problem with Online Learning. And, you know, what he says is essentially that this, he says here, the tool with which students study, read, write, watch educational films, communicate with teachers, take tests, and submit schoolwork is the same tool with which students play video games, share photos, watch shows, check Instagram, send text messages, order food, get directions, and tweet. So he's talking about um, really the kind of behavioral conditioning that's happening with technology and is concerned that when we have online learning, it is really um, difficult for children to concentrate on academics and on content when they're so accustomed to using technology for entertainment, play, communication. And when I read this, you know, certainly I agree that certainly the the remote learning experiment that has occurred as a result of the pandemic and the remote learning that, that students were thrust into this past spring was far from ideal. It's unclear whether there will be improvements this fall. Um, you know, there's certainly many shortcomings in the way remote learning is being executed right now. But I think that there's a uh, the, the, the sense I got from this article was um, a, a suspicion or a cynicism about mm-hmm. technology. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I, I would push back on that a little bit because I think it's, you know, sort of this traditional sense of uh, technology can be corrupting. It can be um, it can be something that is damaging to young people or damaging to society. And one of my favorite quotes in my uh, unschooled book, I have a whole chapter devoted to technology. There was this quote by a journalist who said in talking about technology, a new technology, we shall soon be nothing but transparent heaps of jelly to each other. (laughs) And he was a journalist in 1897 talking about the telephone. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, I would just push back and say that there's certainly um, concerns about technology, but for the most part, of course, technology has added so much to our lives and learning uh, that we shouldn't really be fearful of it. I agree with you. I also find it quite interesting that the sudden the sudden interest in what students are learning when they watch a TV screen is somehow different than when we say we want children to watch uh, shows on PBS or to watch other learning channels that are you know coming through a screen or a TV. Yeah, I, I think that there is some fear for technology, but I'm not sure how much of it is real versus imagined. But We are in interesting times, and a lot of the great work that you uh, were doing beforehand keeps a lot of us interested in learning, and um, we will see what happens from there. And in fact, speaking of learning and what students and adults are reading right now, particularly since there is a major increase in the number of books being purchased online and the number of book clubs that have started, we're going to have an opportunity to speak to Herschel Parker who is the H. Fletcher Brown Professor Emeritus uh, at the University of Delaware. He is an award-winning author of books about her in Melville, and he's going to talk to us about his work and what it may mean for us today. I can't wait. Yes. 
Thank you. So when we return, we'll talk to Professor Parker. Herschel Parker is the H. Fletcher Brown Professor Emeritus of the University of Delaware. With Harrison Hayford, he co-edited the groundbreaking 1967 Norton Critical Edition of Moby Dick. Fifty years later, in 2017, he did the third edition of Norton's Moby Dick for the final two volumes of the Northwestern Newberry edition of the writings of Herman Melville. He was a general editor, succeeding Hayford. Parker's Herman Melville, a biography, 1819 to 1851, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Both that volume and the Herman Melville, a biography, 1851 to 1891, won the top R.R. Harkins Award from the Association of American Publishers. Parker's other books include Flawed Texts and Verbal Icons, Melville, The Making of a Poet, Melville Biography, and Inside Narrative. Professor Parker, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. A number of people know some things about Moby Dick, of course, some things about its author. Call Me Ishmael from Moby Dick is one of the most famous lines in American literature. How did you first become interested in Herman Melville? And in your view, what role uh, does classic fiction play for citizens and for students to better understand American civilization? Well, uh, one, I, one part of the answer is biographical and the other is describing what's happening in the last 20 years or so in American life. Uh, I did not have a normal education. I, I had to leave school after the 11th grade. And uh, for seven years, I was a railroad telegrapher. Uh, you don't know any of those uh, or anyone else of those. And in that time, I got tuberculosis and was in a sanatorium for quite a while. And at one point, I was released from the sanatorium and uh, was put in the custody of my parents and for five months, because I couldn't, they, they couldn't run out errands for me, I did nothing but read a one-volume Shakespeare over and over again. Uh, and I knew the plays extraordinarily. I was a high school dropout, but I was a great Shakespearean expert, at least on the, the, the meaning and, and all kinds of things. Um, then the next year, I read Moby Dick. And I had by that time pneumoperitoneum, which is air pumped into the belly to push against the lungs to keep you from getting too tired and and keeping sick. And for 11 afternoons when I was too tired to stand, I read Moby Dick and just could not believe it. Uh, that a young, I knew he was young, that a young American knew Shakespeare that well or had been so powerfully moved by Shakespeare. So that that was the first part of my being moved uh, by Melville. I, I was staggered. And then two years later, I had managed to become to be at Northwestern on a Woodrow Wilson, and that was 59, uh, 59. And I read Pierre over the winter 
break and again was absolutely floored. I didn't understand it. I didn't understand it for decades after that because I didn't know what had happened in terms of Melville's life to make him ruin the ending. But uh, but I could not believe anyone was writing that well uh, in the 19th century because I was of the generation that dismissed American literature. I, I was going to be uh, a great romantic scholar. So I brought to bear uh, an old-fashioned view of the Bible that Melville's mother would have understood perfectly because Southern Baptist theology in the 50s was not that different from the Dutch Reformed Calvinism that she practiced and that Melville was indoctrinated in. And then I brought that really extraordinary knowledge of Shakespeare from five months of some plays I read 20 times, and many of them 11, 12 times. So I really knew Shakespeare and, and could trace it in Moby Dick and in the rest of Melville when I got around to it. So those were two great advantages. And I understood what he was doing with Ishmael when he characterized Ishmael as always seeing one puzzle after another puzzle and and stewing over it, turning it upside down, looking at it from different angles. And then what Melville does, of course, is make Ahab and the whale the biggest puzzles that Ishmael ever encounters. And he ha and so the, the book becomes what Ishmael describes himself as a tragic dramatist, like Shakespeare. And that's what Melville was trying to do in Moby Dick, to become a tragic dramatist where you had to do it without the trappings that the English Shakespeare had with lots of with kings and battles and queens and um, dukes and all that uh, and, and riches. He had to do it in the, in the humblest way possible. But he, he says he, he says that he has to imagine it, that he has to that he has to project it because there are some things he can't know from his observation. But he does what the tragic dramatist does, creates what he has to create. So I was prepared to understand what he was doing with Ishmael. And I, I tell you, I'm much more interested in Ishmael than I am with Ahab. Uh, that, that may be that's probably not the standard view. No, the second part of your question, I don't know how to prove this, but everything changed roughly after 9-11 okay. uh, with Moby Dick. In the 90s, a whole group of authorities tried to throw Melville out of the canon. The March 1994 issue of American literature called The New Melville was basically a let's not teach Melville anymore. The, the introduction by Paul Lauder explained that all of his students loathed Melville. Melville was superior. Melville was snotty. Melville had no relevance to their lives. And I, people knew I was writing a biography. And one of the writers said, we already have full-scale biographies of Melville. And of course, they didn't. Uh, uh, but that attempt of the academic world failed. And... In the next years, I don't know exactly when, but it, I wrote the preface to the second edition of Moby Dick, uh, 
which just before uh, 9-11, and copies came just actually the next day after. But I had understood already that something was changing, and what changed um, is visible in all sorts of places. There, are, there Greg Linus, who's in New Mexico, has a wonderful site on Melville where every day he adds a new uh, session of, of reading all of Moby Dick aloud or four different artworks based on Moby Dick. Uh, and occasionally other Melville works are, are studied too. But what's happened is that rather than seeming to rarefied for them, America, American people in, in churches, in schools, just in communities, as well as these big um, marathons, have embraced Moby Dick. And this never happened before. It certainly wasn't the case in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. But it's, it's been a 21st century thing. And I just, I think it's wonderful. You mentioned, yeah, you mentioned an interesting Great. point. So first of all, thank you for sharing your personal story, uh, both health-related and education, because some of our listeners may not have known that about you. And we also have listeners who themselves have not finished high school, so you are a role model on many different fronts. You talked about war, how that changed, uh, how we look at society, even Melville and Moby Dick. You know, when I think about the moment that we're in right now, do you see any correlations between, let's say, the character of, of Captain Ahab, you know, who's described as the grand, ungodly, godlike man who would strike the sun if it assaulted him? Do you see any, any relations between, let's say, an Ahab um, and, and the mission to kill Moby Dick and what Melville is trying to teach us today about demagogues even then and now? Uh, well... Melville didn't like demagogues. Uh, Melville didn't like bullies. Melville, <laughs> and I, I, I didn't like what some people did uh, after 9-11 and tried to uh, make, well, to, to equate Ahab with uh, President George W. Bush, for example. Uh, I, I, I think it's straining to make Melville teach something that he was not interested in teaching. He, I think, he was much more interested, as I said, in on, on um, in Ishmael as a character, with the, in the process of mind, in in the the psychology of, of Ishmael. I've I've read the book aloud in recent years in preparation for uh, the Norton Critical Edition, third edition. And um, I tell you, I admire the construction of it so much more every time. Uh, the, the way clues are planted so far in advance that Ishmael is going to survive. Uh, the, what he was condemned for not understanding that you, you, they, some of them said, oh, he's so stupid, he doesn't know that if you have a first-person narrator, he's got to survive. 
just because the epilogue was left out of the English edition. I don't really like the thought of demagogue so much. Melville, what Melville was doing uh, was wanting to come up with something as grand as King Lear, but in the most uh, normal, uh, rugged American fashion. He couldn't do it about the American frontier, which he didn't know, but he knew uh, whaling. And he knew so much about the world. He, he he had traveled a lot of the world. He he had a sense of relativity that kept him that one civilization is as good as another, uh, and he had seen different civilizations. He 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 could no longer be dogmatic about uh, any religion or any philosophy. Um, he he had. He really did have extraordinary background in order to to write what he did about uh, the well the fast fish he wanted to make. Uh, he, American literature was full of loose fish, and he was going to he was going to make a fast fish of it and write and produce a very great book, which would be Shakespearean in ambition without the trapping trappings is his word without, with all, without the trappings of, of uh, royalty. Uh, so I, I, I'm not, not, I don't want to talk about um, Ahab as a main character I more and more am interested in the character of um, Ishmael himself. I would like to say something about poetry before we stop. You know, Alfred Kazin, like so many others, uh, was contemptible of the poetry. Uh, At a meeting at at a Barnes & Noble in 97, I, I was with him and Paul Nedkeff, one of Melville's great grandsons, and Cazin uh, uh, said, poetry was just a, a side. You have to remember, poetry was just a sideline with Melville, and something he was never good at. And I very sweetly pointed out that it's what he wrote for a third of a century, and it was, and I, be, I worked a lot on Melville and. English poetry, starting with, of course, Shakespeare and Milton. But uh, my, my book, uh, Melville, The Making of the Poet, uh, was more important than one of the more important things I've ever done because it showed how much British poetry he knew from childhood on and how he was influenced by it and how he evaluated it. Uh, and uh, and I and I in the biography, I stressed that he he had three years after the Confidence Man, but before he finished poems, to to learn how to write poetry. And it's too bad we don't have the book, obviously, because uh, then we would know for sure. So you've talked about the characters Ishmael and Ahab. Um, what about Queequeg the, and the universal ideals that he embodies? What can teachers and well, students today well, the, learn? 
I, I wish we knew when Melville got hold of Craig's book, The New Englanders, which was an old book, uh, 1830. He may not have gotten it until he, the summer of 50. Uh, but it looks as if Balkington was going to be his companion. And then it looks as if Melville got hold of this wonderful book. And Jeffrey Sandburn is the one who found this. I'll give him credit for that. Uh, that there's no doubt at all that Melville borrowed some scenes from the New Zealander to, and rewrote them uh, for Queequeg. But the thing about Queequeg, the point to make is that Melville always felt an incredible of uh, uh, the power of uh, cultural relativity. He just did not, uh, you know, he did not, um, he was not an American booster after. Yes, he was at first in White Jacket, and yes, he, but but he soon, he soon, uh, what he says in at the end of chapter 28 of, of uh, White Jacket, I have marked, I want to read that. In our man of war, this semi-savage wandering about, the gun deck in his barbaric robe, this is uh, someone earlier than Quinquag, seemed a being from some other sphere. His tastes were our abomination, ours his. Our creed he rejected, we his. We thought him a loon, he fancied us fools. Had the case been reversed, had we been Polynesians and he an American, our mutual opinion of each other would still have remained the same, a fact proving that neither was wrong but both right. And he had that cultural relativity all his life because he had been around and had actually lived however long uh, with natives in uh, uh, the Marquesas. Uh, so he, Queequeg uh, was not an absolutely new, the idea of someone like Queequeg is not, a, is not new to him. He's, He's used to the idea of cultural relativity and respect for people of, of who, who don't look like him uh, and don't believe like him. Um, so, it's fascinating. I, yeah. I, and I, Craig is. What can I say? Uh, I wish we knew more. I wish, uh, gosh, I wish someone would show when Melville got hold of the New Zealanders because that would help us in understanding where Melville was when he introduced him into the book. He could have had the book, had him from the beginning, but we have no idea. We don't know what friend owned a copy of it, or we don't know that he ever had a copy of it other than uh, to read it and you know, borrow it and steal from it. Uh, but San Sandburn describes all that. Thank you so much for sharing your, your words and your wisdom with both of us. Would you like to end the call with uh, a reading that you like to share with the audience? Well, let me just read the most famous passage of all. And Lord knows it's, um, it's powerful still. Call me Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, 
having little or no money in my purse and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. Is a way I have of driving off the spleen and regulating the circulation. Whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, whenever it's a damp, drizzly November in my soul, whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet, and especially whenever my hypos get such an upper hand of me that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically knocking people's hats off, then I count it high time to get to sea as soon as I can. This is my substitute for pistol and ball. With a philosophical flourish, Cato throws himself upon his sword. I quietly take to the ship. There's nothing surprising in this. If they but knew it, almost all men in their degree, sometime or other, cherish very nearly the same feelings towards the sea with me. And that, of course, is a point to be demonstrated, and he goes on to demonstrate it for a wonderful chapter. Mm. I love him. And we do, too, and thank you for allowing millions of people to to love the character and the author even more because of your contribution uh, to the discussion, but more importantly, to to good literature and to good ideas. Thank you. Thank you for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. What a great conversation with Professor Parker, a really fascinating look at Herman Melville and Moby Dick. Uh, So we're back with the tweet of the week. And this is a tweet I mentioned earlier in the show um, that there were new findings out about the psychological uh, implications of COVID-19 and the school shutdowns on children. And this was a tweet that I actually tweeted out on Monday, uh, sharing new findings reported in Psychology Today by Dr. Peter Gray, who's a Boston College psychology professor who actually wrote the foreword to my book, Unschooled. Uh, And he found in his survey results that children are certainly missing their friends, like we all are, missing that in-person connection. But interestingly, their children's psychological well-being seem to improve after school closure. Uh, He also found in his survey results that children appeared to gain a greater sense of independence and personal responsibility after school closure, and parents gained a heightened appreciation of their children's capabilities. So my tweet was about fascinating new findings uh, about, again, the the psychological well-being uh, of children in the wake of the school shutdowns. So I think now we are looking ahead to next week and uh, our guest uh, on the Learning Curve podcast next week will be Jack McCarthy, who is president and CEO of Apple Tree Institute for Education Innovation and Apple Tree Early Learning Public Charter Schools. So that will be a really fascinating discussion for you, Gerard. I know Jack. I have not seen him in person in maybe five years we met many years ago when I worked for D.C. public schools in the late 1990s. I was a legislative liaison uh, at D- for D.C. public schools, uh, representing our superintendent before 
the city council and at times uh, before a congressional committee, but this was during the uh, embryonic stages of the charter school movement. And so we had a chance to meet on one side of the fence and then as time moved on, found ourselves uh, in the same boat. So look forward to, uh, to seeing, uh, really talking to him next week. But I want to say it was such a pleasure to uh, co-host this uh, learning curve with you. I learned a lot great. from the great professor and learned a lot also from the, you know, what you've had to, to add into uh, to our conversation today. Always nice to be with you, Gerard. Thanks. Thank you. And to everyone else, have a great week and we will return next week. Mm-hmm.